Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Welcome back to the Good Fight Radio Show. I'm your host, Chad Davidson of Good Fight Ministries, and I'm excited for this exclusive interview. But before I get to it, I want to introduce the show's producer, Tony Palacio. How are you doing today, bro? Praising God. He is good. Yeah, really excited about this interview with Dr. Craig Evans, the John Bassanio Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University in Texas, where we discuss his book, Jesus and the Manuscripts. And on this episode, we discuss certain quote-unquote gospels that were never admitted into the Christian canon and why they are not considered scripture. We're going to be talking about specifically the gospel of of Judas, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, the gospel uh, also of Jesus's wife and so forth. And I remember hearing these statements from people just simply at the water cooler at work where they would come up and say, did you hear about the gospel of Jesus's wife? And then I say, well, actually, that's a later. And then they and then they tell you, well, I only care about history. I don't care about the religious stuff. And I'm like, but the problem is, is we're dealing with history and you're wrong. And I think this is really, really important. And this is this is a great place to also move forward as we talk about Jesus in the manuscripts. And, and one of the reasons I, I mentioned that this is a discipleship issue issue is because I myself needing to learn these things because I'm out sharing the gospel and I'm talking with people and these are the questions that I'm getting. And so in my discipleship group, not only are we talking about Jesus in the manuscripts, but you've also done a wonderful documentary called Fragments of Truth. And I think some of this is brought out visually just beautifully. And I I just have been enamored by it. I've watched it with two groups. I watched it with my wife last night. It is just such an excellent documentary. And then having this book, I would encourage you guys all to check out Jesus in the Manuscripts, buy this book as well as watch Fragments of Truth because both of them will help. And watch it over and over. Read this book over and over to help disciple one another so that we have answers for these questions that we may hear on the streets or at work and so forth. Because I think Dr. Craig Evans here does a great job in answering these. And in Jesus in the Manuscripts, one of the things you bring out right away in one of the first chapters is Jewish Gospels. And I think a lot of people have no idea what you would mean when you talk about simply Jewish Gospels. What are you talking about? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. It is a little bit confusing because uh, the Gospels in the New Testament are Jewish. The one that might be by a Gentile, a former proselyte, would probably be the Gospel of Luke. But uh, Matthew, Mark, and John were undoubtedly written by uh, Jewish Christians, Jewish followers of Jesus, and uh, <clears throat> apostles, in the case of Matthew and John. And yet, when I'm talking about Jewish Gospels, I'm really talking about later Jewish versions, probably based on Matthew, that uh, <clears throat> were pr- similar to some of the Judaizers that Paul talks about. And they get mentioned They get mentioned in the book of Acts, the Judaizers, the people who want to keep the Christian faith very close uh, to Judaism, especially as the Pharisees understood it. That's what caused some tension in the early church. And so you had people uh, in the church, of, some of them were, were in fact Pharisees who had become converted, were told that in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 15. And so they want to be sure that 
you know, the Gentiles who join the church, they become proselytes, uh, circumcision, kosher food laws, observation, of course, of the Sabbath, purity issues, and so on. The church debated that, and it was only because James, the brother of Jesus, who was giving leadership to the church in Jerusalem, it was only because he said, look, we've got to leave these guys alone. They don't have to become Jewish proselytes, but they do have to avoid pagan activities. So that was this, that's what was going on in the first generation of the church. <clears throat> and I think what happened later was within the church, people who believed that Jesus really was the Messiah, really did fulfill prophecy, they just wanted to hang on to, they weren't too happy with that decision. They wanted to hang on to the Jewish law the way they thought it should be uh, fulfilled and practiced. And so they... they edited Matthew. It's probably, Matthew is probably the main document for them. And so you get a little more of a strict view of, of the law, a little more, you know, strict view of diet issues. And so those are the Jewish Gospels. The trouble is, though, not one has survived. All we have are quotations where church fathers, you know, they're talking about a gospel story, Jesus healed somebody, or one time Jesus said something, and then they'll say, oh, by the way, it reads a little differently in the Gospel of the Hebrews or in the Gospel according to the Nazarenes. And that's where these Jewish Gospels come up, and it's tantalizing. We just wish we had a whole manuscript, but I don't think we do. We just have these quotations, and so we're not real sure. And, and these people, they, they slowly fade away or they merge with the, the main church the way, the way it, it developed on into the Middle Ages. Wow, that's pretty interesting. I, I remember reading it in the book, and just it's fascinating to find these different things. As you mentioned, the church fathers there uh, quoting from them, and it's it's pretty interesting when we see that. But I think this next question is one of my favorites because it's something that I've heard a lot about, but mostly from people who know nothing about it. Uh, so I want to know a little bit more about the Gospel of Thomas. Why is it not part of the New Testament? <laughs> you know, I laugh every time I hear that question, and, and of course there'll be scholars that'll say that too, and it's like, oh, for crying out loud, if, first of all, read the text. Just read it. Its opening line is, these are the secret words of the living Jesus, which Thomas wrote down. Okay, what part of secret do you not get? And so if you understand what canon is, canonical books, just read what the church fathers say. The books for the canon are the books that are to be read publicly in church. Well, how in the world can you, can you keep secret the words of the living Jesus, as Thomas talks about them, by reading them publicly in church? So right away there's a big problem. So the Gospel of Thomas itself, whoever wrote it, and by the way, Thomas didn't have a thing to do with it, uh, it was written a hundred years after Thomas was dead. It was written probably no earlier than about 180, uh, so a good hundred years after the time of the other Gospels, the ones in the New Testament. So it's a total fiction. Thomas didn't write it at all. But it's a secret version. It's uh, for the elite, for the insiders, that's going to give us the real skinny about what Jesus said and so on. So that's what it is. It's a fiction and it's altering Jesus' teachings a little bit, uh, narrowing them down. Jesus becomes more esoteric, more elitist, more ascetic, 
Jesus wants you to be uh, a vegetarian, for example, and so forth. He doesn't want you to have any fun. He wants you to miss out on all the fun. And so it's just a, it's an idea that some people had, monastic-type guys in Syria in the second century. It's not what the authentic historical Jesus said. And it's supposed to be a secret. It's not supposed to be read publicly. And also, the actual manuscripts that we have, they're clearly not written to be read in public. They're written in a small, cramped hand. One of them is written on the back of some other writing. This is not the way writings, biblical writings, were written that were intended for public reading. So those are the main reasons why uh, Thomas never was considered to be added to the New Testament. Uh, you know, whoever wrote it didn't want it to be put in the New Testament. Wow, quite quite interesting and definitely different than uh, what we hear in the mainstream, uh, <laughs> typically. Well, but... the mainstream doesn't do scholarship. The mainstream <laughs> runs with rumors and gossip. Uh, they get it half wrong, but I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed by the scholars, too, who don't seem to know what they're talking about and, and talk about how Thomas ought to be in the New Testament or why was Thomas left out. I mean, when they say things like that, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And in, uh, in Jesus and the Manuscripts, you also mentioned this fifth gospel, the Gospel of Peter. And why is it called the cross gospel, and why isn't that one included? <laughs> Well, we don't have the whole document. What we have is uh, Jesus being sent to the cross, his crucifixion, and then this amazing resurrection that takes place Sunday morning. That's all we have. And it was found, by, like so many of these documents, it was found in somebody's grave in North Africa. So we don't know what the entire document looked like, but what we do have, it's clear. It's a reckless apologetic. It's Whoever wrote it is trying to show that there were many, many witnesses that saw the resurrection. This is in response to the skeptics of the second century, people like Celsus who said, why in the world should we believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Who saw him come out of the tomb? I mean, the earliest witnesses are a couple of hysterical women. Why should we believe what they have to say? You know, so that's the kind of polemic uh, in the second century, and so the Gospel of Peter, which, by the way, was not written by Peter, uh, Peter long dead by the time the Gospel of Peter was written, uh, it's a it's a really naive attempt to generate some apologetic and say, oh yeah, everybody was there, the Roman centurion, all the guards, Jewish elders who had spent the night in the cemetery keeping an eye on the tomb, which is ridiculous, of course, they would never do that. The whole town in Jerusalem came out, you know, because things were happening. Everybody saw it. Two big, tall angels that went into the tomb and took Jesus out of the tomb. And Jesus was even taller than they were. His head went all the way up into the clouds. And then to answer your question, why do they call it the cross gospel? It's because the cross was buried with Jesus. The cross itself comes out of the tomb, which, of course, is totally unhistorical. But this reflects a second-century a second-century interest. Uh, it's almost like a cross mythology that began to develop, and you get these uh, visionary apocalyptic scenes described where Jesus comes shooting through the air like Superman, and flying right next to him is his cross. And so they, you know, some of these guys, and of course these texts were not considered authentic. They were condemned. Of course, they weren't added to the Bible. But uh, these wild imaginations some people had, they could imagine Jesus and his cross shooting through the sky, coming back in victory. And so that's what, <clears throat> that's what the Gospel of Peter portrays. It's not historical at all. 
And the idea that some scholars suggested that the Gospel of Peter actually was the first Gospel written as early as the middle of the first century, and that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John made use of it, is utterly absurd. Everything about the Gospel of Peter and its walking, talking, cross, yeah, did I forget to mention? Uh, the heavenly voice said, have you preached to them that sleep? That is, to those who are dead. And it isn't Jesus who says yes. It's the cross that answers God and says yes. So this cross not only can, can walk, it can also uh, talk. And it's like the uh, talking horse, Mr. Ed. It's the most ridiculous thing. It was composed in the second century. It's not early. It never was a candidate for canon either, by the way. In fact, when this one bishop discovered that it was being read in some of his churches, this is near the end of the second century, he said, knock it off, quit reading it. Uh, it's just, it doesn't contain the truth. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. Who knew that uh, talking about manuscripts would be so interesting with <laughs> talking crosses and whatnot? Uh, and I got to ask, since we're going down this uh, this rabbit trail, so so to speak, in terms of uh, you know falsified and 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 kind of nonsensical, I think one of the more recent ones has to do with the Gospel of Jesus's wife. And I guess as a, as a whole, is there any evidence whatsoever that Jesus was married or even encouraged homosexual behavior? Absolutely none. Uh, this is more of a modern uh, uh, fascination, obsession. Maybe it's it just. I think it really says a lot about how sexually sexually oriented people are today. <clears throat> there was no, not a hint anywhere uh, in the past about this kind of thing. Um, if, by the way, if, from a Jewish point of view, including ideas about Messiah, there would have been nothing strange or unusual. For Jesus to have been married. I know theologically we're so used to thinking differently, we'd think, what? What do you mean? But there would have been nothing strange had Jesus been married. What was unusual was that he was not. And so it became more of an, well, you know, he wasn't married because, you know, he had great things to do and so on and blah, 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 blah. And so the idea that uh, Jesus's marital status is somehow embarrassing or would have to be hidden or something like that. That's just modern thinking. There's no truth to it at all. And the church fathers uh, all say back in the second century, several of them, yeah, Jesus was single, so what? Yeah, he didn't have a wife, what of it? Uh, that was the attitude then. And of course, the idea that Jesus might have been gay because he didn't have a wife is absurd. That, again, is a modern idea that somebody has thrown out. Nobody in antiquity Imagine that. Just imagine, if Jesus had been gay, his enemies would have had a field day. I mean, they could have destroyed his ministry instantly uh, in the first century. They wouldn't have to quibble with him over what constitutes purity or keeping the Sabbath or something like that. If Jesus were uh, gay, that would be considered a grievous, a grievous sin. He would, be, he would have no following. He'd have no disciples. Uh, his several of his disciples were married. Peter, obviously, one of them. They would say, "What? Jesus is a gay man." They wouldn't have a thing to do with him. So this gay thing is all a modern uh, obsession uh, that's been around for the 20th century and now the 21st. It has nothing to do with Jesus in antiquity. So that needs to be put to rest. The other thing is this gospel of Jesus's wife fragment that became much talked about a few years ago. As many of us knew, was I took one look at it. I was interviewed back in 2012 when this was announced, 
And uh, <clears throat> someone called up, some reporter, and said, well, Professor Evans, what do you think? Well, I'd looked at it, a beautiful high-resolution color photograph of this uh, papyrus fragment with Coptic writing on it. Well, the ink was so glossy, it looked brand new. So I commented, uh, I said, this text isn't as old as my grandson. And, uh, of course, I later thought, you know, that might have been a bit reckless. Turns out, I'm right, my grandson's at least two years older than this text. <laughs> it was produced in the 21st century, probably a year or two uh, after Dan Brown's book, Da Vinci Code, probably a year or two after the movie version came out in 2006. It has been proven conclusively that it's a modern hoax. We even know who wrote it. And so the whole matter has been put to, put to bed. And by the way, you know, you can read my book, you can read that chapter uh, that we're talking about, and all the facts are there. Um, everybody knows this thing's a fraud. And the, the uh, professor from Harvard who published it, she, of course, is very embarrassed now and sheepish that she was taken in and suckered. Pretty, pretty sad. And yes, we are talking to Dr. Craig Evans about his book, Jesus and the Manuscripts. And if you guys don't have it, I encourage pastors, teachers, uh, people, laymen, anyone who's trying to dig into the subject, anyone who likes to share the gospel with people and may hear some of these things that are out there, this is a great way for you guys to have real scholarship on the subject. So please, please check this out. You can get it at craigevans.com. And we're just really blessed right now to continue with our interview with Dr. Craig Evans. So I want to ask you, this is something I've heard quite a bit as well. There is very little in the Gospels concerning Jesus's childhood. So why do you think there's such a silence about this? Well, <clears throat> you know, Jesus's ministry didn't begin until he was an adult. So in a sense, his childhood is irrelevant. And so I'm, not, I'm a little bit surprised that we have one story. Uh, we have one story in uh, the Gospel of Luke. And, uh, and of course, Luke has made inquiry among witnesses. He's talked to family members. And so this story probably really stuck out where people say, well, I, we all remember when Jesus was 12 and we made one of our trips. We typically every year went down to Jerusalem. Uh, and, uh, and one day, one time we did that and we'd left and we were a whole day out north of the city of Jerusalem on our way back to Galilee. We realized Jesus wasn't even with us. It's kind of like home alone. And so they ah, and they, they went back to Jerusalem, and there's Jesus in the temple precincts, hanging out with the scholars, talking theology. And uh, they were really irked. And, and, you know, Mary said, how can you treat us this way? <clears throat> and he said, well, didn't you think I would be in my father's house? Which was a pretty clever theological response. And Mary remembered that, you know, and she treasures this this memory in her heart, and I think Luke inquired from her and learned that from her. That's the only story we have is Jesus as a boy. But uh, there became fascination with him, and I think this is in response to pagans once again. Well, what kind of a—you say Jesus is divine, you say he's the Son of God. Well, surely there were indications of that when he was a baby or a toddler or a young lad running around in the fields. And so <clears throat> some people, unrestrained by, by truth and facts and history and so on, said, well, as a matter of fact, and they started telling these stories, some of them clearly modeled after pagan stories. So Jesus is a boy wonder. He's the, you know, he's the best athlete. When he makes clay pigeons, they're so lifelike. <laughs> Why? They come to life and fly away. Uh, you know, and that kind of thing. You don't cross him either. All he has to do is speak the word, and you'll drop dead. 
And so it's actually grotesque, some of these infancy narratives. And I talk about them, and I think we know why they were written. They were to, to say that, you know, Jesus was just like the other gods, the Olympian gods, like Hercules and Dionysus and Hermes. And he starts out kind of like a brat, but unlike the other gods who turn into adults and are still dangerous, Jesus, as he grows up, becomes kind and compassionate. He becomes sympathetic. He cares about people. He heals people. And in the end, he's even willing to die for them. And, I, and so that was the idea, like, oh, my goodness, well, Jesus is no ordinary Olympian deity. He's far better than the rest of them. So I think it was, it's kind of a childish curiosity and a childish apologetic behind some of these infancy stories. And by the way, the Christian scholars and theologians of the time didn't give them the time of day. They thought they were silly and shameful, and people shouldn't read them. <laughs> you know, in uh, Jesus in the Manuscripts, what we're discussing today on the Good Fight Radio Show, you mentioned that textual criticism has matured. Could you uh, explain that for us? Well, yeah, you know, textual criticism, uh, I think, used to be, uh, this is the way I was taught, in fact, when I was a seminary student myself, and it was like, oh, yes, these textual variants are such a pain, we got to get rid of them, you know, oh, dear me, we need to get back to the original text, and, and it's like the textual variants, and the scribal mistakes and corrections and so on, were a real, real negative thing. Well, what we've learned is actually... They're fascinating. Now, of course, mistakes are mistakes. That's nothing. Scribes make mistakes, write the wrong thing. But in grappling with the text, they're trying to understand it. And so we read now the textual variants with greater sympathy and far greater interest. Uh, the textual variants aren't enemies that we're trying to get rid of, but rather they become commentary. They become, in some cases, insightful. And they, they, pr they provoke us to think more deeply about how the text was understood in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries, as Christians, uh, scribes, and scholars grappled with the text, trying to understand it. So that's what I'm talking about. And then this, this rigid, uh, I think, very immature, rigid um, understanding of Scripture, like if you, if you can't figure it out right down to the last letter, it's kind of an all-or-nothing brinkmanship. If you can't prove that every single word is right, we're just going to have to throw it away and give up. I mean, that's just silly. That's naive. And it's, in fact, I would call it a form of bibliolatry. It's like you're worshiping the Bible itself instead of recognizing that it's a witness to what God has done in Christ. That's the whole point of it. Uh, and, and quit treating the Bible like it's like a talisman, like a magical book or something like that. But instead, it's, it's a very important record, very important instruction. It has great pragmatic value. Paul himself says that in uh, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. There's a pragmatic value to Scripture. It instructs us, corrects us, guides us, and we need to remind that, and we need to stop worshiping the Bible itself. You know, that's really interesting because we've dealt a lot with uh, Muslims, and when it comes to the Quran and the Bible, I'd love for you to kind of explain the differences between critical scholarship when it comes to the Bible versus the Quran. Well, yeah, there's a lot that could be said, and I know we're running out of time, so I'll keep it short and sweet. Um, fortunately, Christians were not in the habit of destroying their own manuscripts. Uh, when, we, when a Christian scholar, for example, saw a manuscript that had a different reading in it, he didn't say, oh, take this out and burn it. He held on to it and studied it. 
But in Islam, for some reason, I'm not sure why, but back in the 8th and 9th centuries, when the Quran wasn't very old, uh, some of your listeners might not know, but Muhammad died in the year 632. So that's the 7th century. He dies in 632, and in the next generation or so, um, his companions, his successors, and so on, wrote down what he had been saying. The Quran had been mostly just memorized. Uh, it, in fact, the word Quran in Arabic means recitation. So not a lot of the Quran had been written down in Muhammad's lifetime. And so it gets written down in the next 50 to 100 years. And so there was concern that it get written down right. Oh, okay, I understand that. And so when manuscripts were found that seemed to deviate from the preferred manuscript, and that was a political as well as theological decision, somebody said, this is the version. It'd be like today saying the RSV and nothing else. Get rid of the NIV. Get rid of the King James. You know, this is our preferred version. And so I preferred, and of course we're talking about the Arabic language. So other manuscripts uh, were gathered up and burned and gotten rid of. And unfortunately, that's destroyed so many of the ancient witnesses that now with modern textual critical study of the Quran, there is a recognition that there are some problem spots, but it's harder to recover the original because so many ancient witnesses were disposed of. And so that's a challenge for textual criticism of the Quran. The other thing, too, there are a lot of people out there, they simply don't want textual criticism. It'd be sort of like Christian fundamentalists, that equivalent. You know, the King James is it. You know, I don't want anything else. <laughs> and so there's that problem among Muslims also. So I don't know if there ever will be a true, truly a critical edition of the Quran. It's hard to say, because there's a lot of resistance to that idea, and a lot of the witnesses are gone anyway, so that if, if people do decide to do that, it's going to be really difficult. What do you think we would find, actually, if we did a legitimate scholarship on the manuscripts of the Quran? Well, I, I'm, I'm sure there would be many, many uncertain readings that would, we just never would be able to clear up. But what to me, to me, the text criticism of the Quran is not the big deal. It's, it's Muhammad's very feeble understanding of the biblical literature itself. He's constantly alluding to it, quoting it, or, or paraphrasing it presupposing it, and he gets things mixed up, uh, and, uh, and of course, Muslims can be very naive. They can say, look, it's in the Quran, that makes it right. Well, hey, Muhammad is, is talking 500 years after the Gospels in the New Testament were written. You know, he's born in the year 570, give or take a year or so, well, you know, the four Gospels have been around 500 years, but yet Muhammad thinks he knows better what Jesus actually taught, what Jesus actually did, you know, and, and there are all kinds of mistakes and mix-ups, and, uh, and so, you know, and that's what's caused some of the hardship and hard feelings between, historically, between Christians and Muslims, because Muhammad, he liked Jesus. He th he's like, you know, he's a great guy, he's a, he's a prophet. But he, he didn't teach what you Christians say. You Christians got it all botched. And, uh, and so Muhammad tries to straighten the record. Well, how does Muhammad know anything? How, do, how does he know better what Jesus taught when Muhammad comes along 500 years later and then makes all kinds, and they're confirmable, some of these mistakes. You can, uh, you know, historical, geographic mistakes, you know, because he, he uh, honestly, I'm not trying to insult anybody, but 
most of the time he doesn't know what he's talking about. And so that's part of the problem, too. Well, we have about one minute left to conclude here. And I wanted to ask you, because I believe you lay out a great case in Jesus and the manuscripts. Remember, we're talking with Dr. Craig Evans today. And so concerning this book, Jesus and the Manuscripts, you leave readers with little doubt about the Christian canon. Does this mean we can trust the Bible completely? Well, of course. Uh, You know, the, the canon was chosen slowly, wisely, widespread. There was no conspiracy. A group of bishops didn't get together and say, let's choose these books and not the other. Emperor Constantine didn't say, these are my preferences, choose these. In other words, none of the Dan Brown stuff is correct. That's all baloney. And so uh, the early church recognized the stuff that uh, the apostles wrote, that's the stuff we want. The early stuff, the first century apostolic stuff, they're the guys taught by Jesus. They know what they're talking about. And so there, there's no rocket science here, but there was no haste and, and rap, you know, uh, uh, recklessness, uh, carelessness. Uh, it was ratified gradually, slowly, all over the place by various churches as well as various leaders. And, and that's uh, the way I think it should be. Well, we want to thank Dr. Craig Evans, the author of Jesus and the Manuscripts, for joining us today. It has been an awesome discussion. I hope you guys have benefited from it and will grow in Christ through it. God bless you. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.